My life changed undeniably and, and mostly for the better, I think definitively for the better, uh, 11 and a half years ago when I became a father for the first time. And I still remember going and talking to others who have gone through this before Karen and I did and asked them, what is, what is it like to become a, a dad or a parent? And then they would start to try to explain it and then, oh, and then start over again. And then finally all of them would give up and say, I, can't, I don't have words for this. It's something you just have to experience. And then when that experience did happen, it was something where, oh, I think that is absolutely true. It is a bit unexplainable. But the reason I bring this, bring this up is because I learned a lot about my heavenly father. I learned a lot about God and my relationship with him when I became a parent. And it gave me, imperfectly, but a small glimpse from his perspective on how it feels as a parent when you love somebody so much, when you care for them, when you need to discipline them, when you're just so frustrated that they won't listen to what you have to say. And then when all of a sudden I related to God in that way, I learned more about Him. Now, we don't all have the opportunity to be parents. Some of you have been a parent for a long time. Some of you are looking forward to that day when you will. Others, you may never have that opportunity. But there's still so much we can learn about God when we think about Him as our Heavenly Father, a role that God plays that's revealed to us throughout Scripture. Even as children, we can learn a lot about God in this way as we think about Him as our Heavenly Father. And of course, we also have imperfect earthly fathers, and we are imperfect earthly parents and imperfect children. And so all of these analogies, while helpful, will still fall short of the truth of who God is. And so once again, we're brought to the Word of God, how He has revealed Himself to be what He has revealed to be true. And this includes Isaiah 9-6, where this Messiah prophesied through Isaiah is called to be the eternal Father. Now remember, Isaiah is prophesying about the nature of this eternal king that will come from the line of David. What type of king will this be? And there are these four titles that describe the nature of this king. We learn that he is to be called the Wonderful Counselor, meaning he can give wisdom like no other. In fact, he would be the very wisdom of God himself. He is also called Mighty God, He and he alone would be powerful enough to overcome all the enemies that God's people face, including even those enemies of sin and death. And today we unpack this truth that his name is also called Eternal Father or Everlasting Father. Now, we usually begin over the past few weeks by focusing on the noun, but today is different. Both everlasting and father, I think, can be seen as descriptions of what type of king Jesus is prophesied to be, what type of king he is for us here today. So we're going to go through this in a more conventional order. First, Jesus is everlasting. Now, I'm at this point in my life where I can say things like, ah, they don't make things to last these days. They don't build them like they used to. Back when I was a kid, the fridge would last forever. I don't know. Maybe I'm not getting quite that old. But I think there's a truth to this. Planned obsolescence is a marketing strategy in our world, especially in technology. They don't want that phone to last forever. They want you to buy a new one, 
a few years down the road. They want you to buy a new TV. And, and, and this is also done in appliances. Things are truly not built to last the same way that they were in the past. And that is on purpose. But this planned obsolescence is so pervasive that entire companies can make marketing campaigns on saying, we are an exception to this rule. Our products will last a really long time. Being long-lasting is an incredible selling feature. And perhaps we see no better example of this than the Energizer Bunny. And we see Energizer batteries and their whole marketing campaign for the last 30 years has been that they will, their batteries will last longer than the competition. They will just keep going and keep going and keep going. And they've had many different creative examples of this in their ads and commercials. This is just one such example here. Apologies to any in-laws visiting here this morning, but maybe those visits do feel like they go on forever at Christmas time. All sorts of different ways to say that these batteries keep going and keep going and keep going, even though they are not going to be everlasting. Well, if we take a look at the world today and say that things aren't built to last, if we look at the world of Isaiah's time, we also know that the monarchy that Israel had was also not built to last. Ever since the people of Israel asked God for a king, there had been problems. And if you, want, if you want to check it out, you can read through Kings and Chronicles and read through all these different line of kings that began with, with Saul, but really with the line of David. And you'll see that there were a number of really good kings, but, but there were more kings that were evil, that were bad, that went against God's wishes. And through their own behavior and through their leadership, they violated the covenant between God and his people. They did not uphold their end of the bargain, and they led the people astray. And, and because of this, because this covenant had been broken and hadn't been kept, then the monarchy didn't last. It led to their eventual defeat and to exile. For Israel, this was defeat and exile by the Assyrians. And already, as we're reading these words of Isaiah, this invasion has just begun. And later, for the, the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, it was Babylon that would eventually conquer them. It was not a monarchy built to last. And so this messianic hope of the people would be for something different. They didn't want this imperfect, bad monarchy to continue on. They didn't want to have this up and down roller coaster experience. They didn't want to see this true a nation that God had promised them to come to an end. They were looking for a permanent, long-lasting, everlasting kingship and kingdom. And Isaiah agrees. He leans into this expectation. His prophecy is part of what the people are clinging to, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so while there was this monarchy that was broken and imperfect and wasn't built to last, the people were always hoping for something that would be truly everlasting. That's the type of king that they wanted. That's the type of kingship that they needed. But while the people were looking for a line of kings that would be now perfect and everlasting, Jesus arrives on the scene and once again 
exceeds expectations. He doesn't just begin a line of kings that would then go on through father and son and son and son forever. He is the one true eternal king. He is everlasting in and of himself. No one was needed once Jesus arrived. He didn't usher in a new line of kings. He is the one true everlasting king. And once again, the people's expectations were so close to being right. But when Jesus came, he he exceeded those expectations. And he fulfilled them above and beyond what the people could have hoped for or imagined. So Jesus is this everlasting king. And so as we seek to understand the everlasting nature of Jesus, I think we need to broaden our understanding of that term. So if you're anything like me, and you're anything like the people at Energizer, we'll define everlasting as something that begins and then goes on and just continues to go on and on and on and on into an indefinite future. It begins and it will continue and it will never end. This thing we would describe as everlasting. But that's not the full conception of what the Bible is teaching us about Jesus. Everlasting is not something that will only uh, never stop. It refers to something or to someone that has always existed and exists now and will always continue to exist. And if we are to understand everlasting in this way, the clues are right in our passage. I love the way that when when Carolyn came and was reading the Advent reading and started with the scripture, we hear these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, I don't know if God gave Isaiah some very um, interesting and supernatural insight into the theology of who Jesus would be. But look at the two distinctions we have. For to us a child is born. There was a moment in time in the course of human history, and when God took on flesh and was born as a baby, fully God, fully man, there was a moment in which he was born into this world. A child is born. But then Isaiah says something again. He, he goes over it again and says, for to us a son is given. The child may be born, but the son was given. The son did not begin at this moment. He has existed from eternity past and will exist into eternity in the future. This is right in line with what we learn from John and his Christmas uh, story in John 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, being Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So before creation, before God spoke this world and this universe into being, Jesus was there. He existed. He was already present. And then we look all the way to the end of Scripture. In Revelation 1.8, also written by John, the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the very first letter in the Greek alphabet and the very last. The beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so Jesus is the beginning and the end. He has always existed. He will always continue to exist. And that is what is meant by everlasting Father. So for this reason, I think the best English word that we have to capture this characteristic of Jesus is eternal rather than everlasting. Because everlasting gives us this concept of of something linear and on a timeline. But Jesus is above and beyond that. He is eternal. He is outside of creation. Outside of time, which is part of creation. And so Jesus is the eternal king. His kingdom will know no end. 
And when he returns at that second advent that we look forward to, he will usher in the fullness of this eternal kingdom, and this is our great hope. So everlasting, we can talk about it being eternal, and this is not just playing word games to make the Bible suit what we want to say. Uh, the literal Hebrew here for everlasting father would translate father of eternity. So when we want to use that word eternal, I think it gives us the best understanding of what Isaiah is trying to teach us here. But Christ is called, this Messiah is called everlasting Father. And I think this is interesting and maybe a little bit confusing. Are we talking about a son, this child that was born, this son that was given? Now you're defining him as the Father. Is, is this Jesus the Son or God the Father? Are they the same or different? And we start to really get a little hung up on our doctrine of the Trinity, which I'm not going to get into today. But we understand that God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons in complete unity, three in one. So you say, is, are we talking about God the Father or Jesus the Son or the Holy Spirit? And my answer is just yes. And I don't want us to get too hung up in the weeds. Remember the focus of this passage. God is, through Isaiah, describing what type of king and Messiah Jesus would be. And he is going to be an eternal king, and he is also going to be a fatherly king. Not a dictator, not just an administrator, not someone who is absent, but a king who is a father to his people. That's the type of king that Jesus is. And all of these attributes that come to life, uh, they, they come to life when we look at it from our perspective as children or parents. So when we say that Jesus is a fatherly king, then think about how you relate to your parents and how you as a parent relate to your children or your grandchildren or as an aunt and uncle to those nieces and nephews that are, are close to you. And then we begin to understand a little more deeply what it means for Jesus to be this fatherly type of king. But I believe as we unpack all, a lot of this in Scripture, there are three ways that we can describe outside of our experience, but through Scripture, the type of king that Jesus is. The first point is this. Jesus is fatherly in his concern for his people. On this upcoming Tuesday, I will have the opportunity to speak at chapel for Steinbeck Christian School. I'm going to come right back here. I'm going to lead chapel. And so I was, I was asking uh, Thor Barkman, who's the principal now, what the theme was for this year. And I loved it. He says, the theme is God knows my name. God knows my name. And especially in that ancient Near Eastern culture, the name was this huge, significant part of who you were as a person. So to know someone's name is to know them personally, to know them at a deep and significant level. And so I love just adding my voice to the many others that will encourage these students that God is concerned about you. He knows you personally and completely and in a fatherly way. But think about this for a moment. We've just established that Jesus is eternal. He has existed before creation, and he exists now, and he will continue to exist. He's outside of creation. So how in the world could someone like that care about me and about you? When we think about how vast the universe is, and then Jesus being greater and above and beyond that, how in the world can Jesus be mindful of us? This is exactly the thought that David was thinking in Psalm 8 when he looks up to the stars and he writes these words. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man 
that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. I mean, God, you are so big and vast and immense and holy and powerful and above and beyond what I can even think of. So when I look at that, and I'm so small in comparison, why do you even know my name? How is that possible? But the beauty of the Word of God is that God says, this is who I am, and this is who you are, and even though you don't deserve it and it may not make sense, I truly do care for you, and I'm concerned about you, and I know your name. That's the truth in Scripture. And a truth that was tested in my family's life. My wife and I found this to be true uh, during a time that we uh, had a significant loss. A number of years ago, we lost uh, our daughter, stillborn daughter, just 36 weeks, very close to being able to meet her in person. And that was never to be true. And so we went through a very dark time of grieving and of loss and of suffering. And at that moment, I had so many things that I had learned in Bible school and seminary that I believed to be true in the Word of God. And so now, God, now you have to, now I'm testing this. Is this true? Are you actually concerned about me? Do Do you hear me? Do you see me in my loss and in my grief? And we experienced in ways that we have a hard time explaining the peace of God during this time. God also saw fit not to have this be the last experience in our family. And he gave us another child, this beautiful, healthy boy that we've named Silas Zachary. Now, Silas is just a name that we liked. And it's a name that's from the Bible, and it wasn't an Old Testament prophet because we didn't want to become too hung up on that. So we named him Silas, but Zachary is is his middle name, and that holds significant meaning. Zachary means the Lord has remembered. And what it meant for us is that God saw us in our moment of grief and of loss. God knew us. God knew what we were going through. He acknowledged us. He was concerned about us. He was mindful of us. And he saw fit to give us what we call our rainbow baby in Silas. The Lord has remembered. The Lord is concerned with your life. He cares about the details. We don't deserve it, but it's true. God cares about the details. And so are we free to share with him the details of our life? Now, if again, I think about this as, as a parent of my own children. Now they're all in school. And so there comes a day or a time every day when we gather around the dinner table and either myself or Karen will ask them, how was your day? And what do you think they tell us every single day? What do you think they say? Good or fine. One of those two things and that's it. That's all. I'm like, but I, I, I'm concerned. I care about this. I want to know more. And so uh, we've tried to change our tack a little bit and ask the question in a different way. Was there anything especially fun at school or something that happened out of the ordinary or something noteworthy? And there are those times, especially when we get them one-on-one, in which all of a sudden something just goes and they tell me a story about something that happened in their day. And I love to hear the details. And as as a parent, I'm concerned about those small things in my kid's life. And God says, I'm equally concerned about you, my children. So do we share with God? Are we open with him? Do we allow him to to be concerned with those details? Or do we just say, God's not interested. He doesn't care. I need to hold this in on my own. Remember, he is our everlasting and eternal father. But Jesus is also fatherly in his care for his people. Because it would be one thing to say that God sees us, acknowledges us, knows what we're going through. But if he never lifted a finger to do anything for us when we were in those situations, 
then I don't think we would really care about his concern all that much. He's not just concerned. He also does something. He cares for his people. He's active in our lives. I love the way the psalmist puts this in Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear them. For he, who fear him. Sorry. The connection is directly made for us. God extends care and compassion to us as his children, just like our parents were concerned and cared for us, just as we care for our kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews and those that we care about. It's one thing to, to acknowledge them. It's another thing to wrap our arms around someone and to give them a hug and to get, bend them a listening ear and to give them a gift of encouragement and to care for people in all these different sort of ways. And there is something very honest and true about being able to go into the arms of a loved one and be cared for. So as fall has gone on and sickness has raged at our house, when our kids are under the weather, when they're just not feeling good at all, they want their mom. Not just a parent, they want their mother. Why? Because she is an excellent caretaker of them. She takes great care. She has patience. She gives hugs. She knows what type of remedies will work in any situation. And so when she cares for her kids in this way, then that is the first place they want to go when things are not going well. Part of us living out this truth is trusting that our Heavenly Father is personal enough and powerful enough to care for us in certain situations. So especially when we are facing a difficult time, especially then, are we leaning into the truth that Jesus cares for you? He is concerned about you, but he's also active in helping you in your time of need. And we've heard here this morning, I appreciate all of you who share these prayer requests. And there are certainly times when we know life is not going according to plan. There are difficult and hard things. And the Christmas season, when things are all going great, is a wonderful time of year. But for many, it is a very blue season, a time where we are all together aware of how things are not the way that we want them in our life. And it is at this moment and at this season in which you can go to Jesus as the fatherly king who cares for you and ask him to meet you where you are, and he will do this. I have another story. I'm not sure I've ever shared it here before or not. I know I repeat many of my stories. Uh, I'm not sure I even shared this with, uh, with the rest of my family, but there was a time uh, before my mom got her cancer diagnosis, she uh, fell and had a really sore back, and she couldn't get back up again. So my, my dad actually called me. He said, can you come over to the house? I'm having a hard time getting mom back up on her feet. By the time I got there and arrived at the house, uh, they had managed together to get her back up, and she was walking with this walker. And when I saw her at that moment, I knew something was wrong. I knew something was not right. And so she, she said all the right things and said, I'm fine, it's okay, uh, we have everything under control. But when I drove home, I had seven minutes by myself and I broke down because I knew something was wrong. And in that moment, I needed my Heavenly Father to be with me. I needed someone who didn't just know my name, but that could be present, that could give me peace, that could meet me in a low moment. And I believe he was there for me, the thing that I mentioned to him over and over again was that there has to be more than this. There has to be more than just this life. There has to be more than just the promises that this world offers to us. Because if this is all there is, 
I didn't know what to do next. In that moment, I needed my eternal father, someone who cared for me personally and offered something that would truly be everlasting. And I met him in my car on that seven-minute car ride. And I truly promise you that if you cry out to him today, he will show care and compassion to you as well. So Jesus is fatherly in his concern for us. He knows our name in his care for us. He is active in these details of our life. He is also fatherly in the discipline of his people. Now I know this is not as you know, wonderful a point to make as the other two. Hey, pastor, let's rewind it a little bit. Talk about how God knows me and cares for me. Well, you know what? Discipline is still a, a significant way in which uh, any parent will relate to a child. It may not be as popular as the first two characteristics, but it's still an important part of being a parent. And uh, I'm not going to be up here and, and drag my kids through this. I'm not going to tell you a story of where I disciplined them. I'm going to instead share a story of when my father disciplined me I was a, a teenager, and we were living in Texas at the time. I wasn't able to get a job there. I think Apparently, I was like an illegal alien immigrant or something. I could only work for cash. So I mowed a bunch of lawns. That's what I did. I mowed lawns to make some money. And I told this one family I would mow their lawn by the end of the week. Now, it's Friday, and I realized that today was going to be Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals between the Dallas Stars and the Colorado Avalanche. That's a big deal being in Dallas. So, you know, in my mind, it was easy. I'm going to watch the game. I will go mow the lawn on Saturday. One day late, no big deal. I'll apologize. It's fine. My dad put his foot down. He says, under no circumstances are you allowed to do that. And then he sent me out there on my lawnmower, and I was listening to the game on my Walkman (laughs) on the radio, (laughs) because you could do that. And I had just cranked as loud as possible to try and hear it over the roar of my ancient lawnmower. And I was mad. And I was angry. I was mad at my dad. I was mad at myself. But why did my dad do this? Why did he make me mow that lawn? Was it because he wanted to assert his authority over me? Be controlling? Was it because he wanted to watch me squirm and he enjoyed seeing me miss what was one of the biggest hockey games of the year? No, of course not. It's clear and obvious, even to me at the time, I would have been able to admit that my my dad was disciplining me because he wanted me to grow up to be a person of integrity, who would be a, a man of his word. He says, if you say you will do something, then you will do it. And that's when discipline became necessary. And God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines for the same reasons, for the sake and the health of his children. We see Solomon admit this in Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12. He says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so discipline is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. It, it costs us something. It can lead to emotions of, of anger and frustration and shame that we don't love. But it's, it's, it's hard, but it's important. It's necessary. And it comes from a place of love. It comes from a God who loves you enough to say, no, I need to correct this course because you are going down a path that ultimately will not be something that will be good for you. Discipline flows out of love. It is directly tied to the concern and the care of Jesus in our life. And so if he is concerned about you and he cares for you, then he will discipline when that time comes. But discipline has this goal. And the goal is of maturity. 
We are all people who are growing up. We're growing up in Christ. We're growing up in our faith and relationship with God. We are growing into the stature of who Jesus is more and more and more every day. Every day. Now, raise your hand if, you, if you've reached the end of that growth, right? Raise your hand if you are a perfectly mature person. Pastor Earl, you want to do it? Come on. Yeah, sure. Fine. No matter what you have done, how much life you have lived, no matter how closely you followed, we are all in the process of running this race, of growing into maturity in Christ. And so discipline is always part of this process. But that is the goal, that we would be more and more mature. And so when I discipline my children, it's with the goal that they will become God-fearing, others-loving men of integrity love Jesus, who love other people. That's what I want for my kids. That's what my heavenly Father wants for me and for you. And sometimes, if it takes a hand slap or more to get us there, that will be what we need. But the goal has always been maturity. And so when we think about the discipline that God offers us, it is almost always going to come in some form through his people, through the church. And so ultimately, we're talking about church discipline. And we've seen this done in many different ways, in many different situations throughout the years. Perhaps you have been a part of this process on one side or the other. And churches have done this well, and some churches have done this incredibly poorly. And the reason that it sometimes goes off the rails is because we lose sight of the end goal. The end goal of discipline in the church is not to say, I'm right and you're wrong. It's not to champion truth and say, this is, my, this is what I believe to be true, and I don't care what happens to you. It's the not to make someone feel shame or guilt. The goal of discipline in the church is to bring someone into closer maturity with Christ, to reconcile relationships that have been broken, to redeem that which seems unredeemable. That's the goal, and we must not lose sight of it. Past few weeks, I've had the opportunity to do some recording for a, a podcast I'm, I'm co-hosting uh, called The Armchair Anabaptist. It's through the EMC, through the conference. Uh, so Emery, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, season two is going to be great. You're going to love it. Hopefully everyone else will too. And our big theme for season two that will be coming out at the end of January, shameless plug, has been community. And part of what we talked about in these subtopics and these episodes is we talked about the ban how there has been this presence in Anabaptist and Mennonite churches where they would exercise the ban or excommunication. And sometimes it was done well, and sometimes it was done poorly. But as we had our guests on, and as they gave their expertise, one thread of thought became true. It's not that the ban itself was good or bad. It's like, what are you using this for? What's the goal? What's the end result? And throughout Scripture, when we see discipline talked about, and when things like accountability and the ban are exercised rightly, it is always with the goal of redemption, of reconciliation, of bringing someone closer to Christ. And if that is the heart behind what we do, and we do this carefully and prayerfully, then we as a church can be a place where discipline is done in a way that helps us grow together and not done out of um, authority or control or shame. But Jesus is our everlasting Father. Sometimes it is a challenge to remember the fatherly nature of a king during a season when we celebrate his birth. His lowly birth in this manger as a human baby. Now, into human history, this is the everlasting Father. This child is eternal, 
always preexistent, continually existent, and out of the bounds and limitations of the created order. And this child, lowly as the beginning was, would mature into a king whose reign is highlighted by the concern, the care, and the discipline of his people. And so this Christmas, we can all be thankful for the type of king that Jesus truly is. A king that sees you and that knows you, that cares for you, wants to hear the details of your life, is powerful enough to do something about the brokenness in your life. He is your everlasting Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a true privilege to be able to call you by that title. To know that you look at us and you see your sons and your daughters. And we can look around and see our brothers and sisters and we can look to you to be our Heavenly Father. God, I know that in our families here, we we have all of these imperfect examples of motherhood and fatherhood and childhood. There are so many ways in which family is just really messy. God, I pray that we wouldn't let that cloud who you are, that you are our perfect Heavenly Father, that you show us perfect concern and care and even discipline with the right pure motives. God, may we understand this in our own lives with you. May we reflect this in our lives together as your family. God, no matter what hardship we're carrying with us this Christmas season, I I pray that we would be a people who trust in the fact that you are personal enough to care and big enough to make a difference. Amen. 